Hi, I'm Gina Schock from the Go-Go's, fabulous drummer of the Go-Go's. And you're listening to Modern Musicology. So, you know, pay attention. You might learn something. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music lovers? Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and with me, I have my amazing friends, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. Rob Levy. Howdy. And A-Dubs. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Delete is applicable depending on whenever you're listening. (laughs) Wow, it's a lot. I love it. (laughs) So this week, we are going to be talking about Woodstock 99, in particular, the new Netflix documentary called Trainwreck. But we're also going to be touching on the HBO documentary from a year ago as well. Um, before we get into that, though, um, first of all, if anybody's not gone and listened to our episode last week uh, interviewing Gina Shock, go listen to that because it was so much fun. It was awesome. Oh, my God. It oh was a God. ride. It was a ride. <laughs> oh, she's amazing. Amazing. Um, so what have you all been listening to or reading or watching this week? Rob, let's start with you. What have you got? <sighs> okay, so I uh this is the part where Steph and I feel incredibly old. Uh-oh. Uh oh. I've been listening to Talking Head 77, which celebrated its anniversary this week. Sweet. And I went back to reading the Robert Chastigal review for it and a couple other reviews. And when it came out, it was compared to Sparks and Yes, which I thought was really fascinating in sort of the... Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. very weird. You read the Robert Chastigau review, review of it, um, which I don't have in front of me, but I can send it to you later, which I thought was interesting. Because I, um, I know what Yes was up to in 77. I oh, I know you do. Anything I, with and I, and I know what heads. Sparks were up to in 77. <laughs> right. And yeah. Yes and Sparks were pretty far apart in 77. Yes, the they truth. were. Yes, they were. But um, here it is. Like Sparks, these are spoiled kids, but without the callousness or adolescent misogyny. Like, yes, they are wimps, but without vagueness or cheap romanticism. Those are the kind of the. Um, wow. So, yeah. So, what a bizarre uh, review. What I, do, what I do when albums like this come out and, I, and they have an anniversary, I go back and read the reviews of them to sort of get a context of where mm-hmm. they were and stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, this record still holds up really well. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, Psycho Killer on it, but there's so many other really great tracks on it. And um, like the book I read and New Feeling are, are two tracks I particularly love, but I just, I just love it. Um, and it still holds up really well. And Chris Franz's book uh, that he wrote uh, about two years ago talks about this period of the band really well. So read that. Um, the other one that turned, uh, had an anniversary recently was Simple Minds, New Gold Dream, 81, 82, 83, 84. And it, it was weird because I was listening to it in the context of, I I was I, I pulled it out, I was listening to it. I'm like, it still sounds fresh. It's still possibly my favorite Simple Minds record. Um, I still like the songs, the way they sound. I like the production on it, everything. I forgot Herbie Hancock uh, was on it. Um, 
And then I got the new Simple Minds record like two days later. So it was an interesting contrast to listen to both of those sort of at the same time. But uh, those are two retro albums that I've been listening to. New album-wise, I've been listening to the new record from Jockstrap. Uh, I love you, Jennifer B. Uh, it's out on Rough Trade, and um, I like that quite a lot. And um, also, I'm still I'm still in the trenches with the uh, Suede hyphen London Suede record, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I'm still listening to that a lot. I just really think it's um, just a lot of fun. And then. Um, because they turned 50 and because they're on tour, I've been listening to a lot of Roxy music this week. And also um, because I'm getting ready to go on a, on a trip, uh, I'm seeing New Order next week. So I'm listening a lot to sort of the early New Order albums just to kind of get caught up. And also I've been listening to a lot of Alan will be throw a lot of Prince, but I'm trying to pick some of the albums that um, I may not be as have gone back to as much. Um, okay. Like what? Well, I, you know, I had not listened to Love Sexy in a very long Ooh, time, which I still a, love. It's a great it's record. A, it's a and, bizarre record. Yeah. And it's um, not that I didn't like it or anything. I just, I've just kind of forgot about it. And then his best of album has a bunch of B-sides on it, which I think, Alan, you talked about before. Hell yeah, man. That's the best disc he ever put out. Just a collection yeah. of B-sides. And I just like, you know, I'm going to listen to all the B-sides. So good. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to like dig into that. The, yeah. into the b-sides a yeah, lot maybe. and the thing the thing about his b-sides is at least for me um i think that is where you really get to see the artistry at work because these are songs where he felt free to improvise and experiment and go outside the box and um do some really different things and i, I think it's an interesting other side of his commercial side that i really liked that's uh, that is uh, basically the long and short of it for me with uh, what I'm listening to. Okay, Stephanie. You know, I mean, I've been waiting for this to come out for like three months, not months, but almost. I don't know. But Daniel Lenoir's album came out finally. It's called oh, Player nice. Piano. Yeah, uh -huh. it came out on the 23rd. So Excellent. immediately, I had to listen to everything as I because we, you know, we've already heard some singles from it, but. Uh, that's really the only thing I've been listening to. It's, it's an all, it's so cool. It's just like all piano instrumentals. There's no vocals, you know, and it's, um, he uses like, you know, his, his effects and stuff like that, but he doesn't go bananas with that either. He does. I think it's sort of like, it's almost like a retro feel that the, that the album has. It's not like a future, it, you know what I mean? It's not like some <laughs> crazy synthy thing. It's it's just piano and, but, but with a sort of a vintage kind of feel and like the, you know, like the forties or something, or like the fifties. I don't know. That's how I would describe it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's really beautiful. Um, like I, there's one song that's the, um, it's the opening track and it's, um, forgot the name of the track right now, but it's a, you know, dedicated to his brother that passed away and mm. sort of that just starts the whole thing and, and it goes from there, but it's, it's just a beautiful album. So really mm -hmm. that's, that's the only thing I've been listening to this week. That's new. Nice. Anthony. So I've really just been listening to two bands. One I recently saw in concert and the other one I'm about to see in concert. So <laughs> ton of porcupine tree. Firstly, amazing, amazing, amazing to finally see them live. I'd seen Stephen Wilson do his solo thing before, so kind of knew what to expect from the front man. But just watching Gavin Harrison in action, he is just such an amazing drummer. So 
so very talented, so very precise, and does a ton of interesting things. Uh, what was really cool about this were the visuals. A lot of the songs had projections behind them on the big screen. And when they did Last Chance to Evacuate Planet Earth before it is recycled, they when they had the samples of Herf Applewhite from Heaven's Gate, the, the sound clips, they actually had the visual from the video on the projections. So you wow. saw him speak the words it, with all of his wide-eyed, maniacal shit from their suicide video. Oh, it yeah. Was... That's why you were watching that documentary this week. Yes. I completely yeah. forgot. I, I didn't even make the connection. I don't know why. That's just stupid of me, but, but it, it makes it, sense it, now. It was a cool show. You know, they played the entirety of the new album. They played some of what you would expect in terms of other songs, Anesthetize, Sounds of Muzak, and they played some deeper cuts. I mean... No one expected to hear anything from before in Absentia, and they played a track off of Lightbulb Sun, a track off of um, Stupid Dream, and a track off of Recordings. So those were all huge surprises. Um, you know, I just wish we'd got a bit more off Deadwing, but otherwise, it was such a cool show. I bought three T-shirts because, you know, I, I've heard they've now run out of medium T-shirts on the tour, so I feel a little guilty. For oh that. man, <laughs> you, you should have saved one or but, two for somebody else. Now, well, I kind of think if I hadn't bought them, someone else would have. Um, <laughs> but it was it was such a cool show and well worth the trip um, and the rather manic 48 hours in New York. And then the other band was Bloodywood. Uh, I'm seeing them tomorrow night um, Dude. playing here in Atlanta. And that show is going to be lit. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's going to be amazing. I was watching a video of uh, their performance of Arj. Um, at Bloodstock over in England. And um, that song is like, it's pretty heavy in parts, but it's all about positivity and seizing the moment and, you know, how despite all the failure, you're going to push on and be a raging success. And they do a little speech before that about, you know, life should not be about what ifs. It's better to try repeatedly and fail than to never even try you've got to take those risks you've got to seize the moment and i'm like fuck yes <laughs> yes so i'm pretty pretty excited i think you know they're one of the more interesting things happening in the metal scene right now kind of merging uh western metal sounds with kind of indian folk music so i'm pretty pretty excited to see how that translates onto the live stage so that's really yeah. all i've been listening to that's awesome. So, Rob, there was a couple of people that you wanted to make mention of this week. Yeah. So, first and foremost, um, I don't know what it is, but since Stephanie has come, we've lost a drummer a week. Oh, God. Uh, so, uh, Anton Fears of Golden mm. Palominos. Horrible. Passed away. And uh, Golden Palominos may not be known to a whole lot of people, but go back and listen to their records. They're, they're pretty incredible. And they were so huge when we were, you know, back in the college days. Back in, back in the day, yeah. yeah. And his particular style of drumming is interesting because it's a little more subdued uh, than a lot of the indie bands. A lot of these indie bands at the times, the drummers were just always kind of letting loose. Whenever they had a chance to do a solo, they let loose. And he's a little more subdued and a little more nuanced. And uh, he passed away Wednesday. I was in the middle of doing my show, and, and somebody messaged me about that. And it was it's very sad because all these really – talented musicians are dying so young yeah. it's, it's really sad and then uh two jazz people i want to talk about uh pharaoh sanders who's sort of like a huge icon in um popular culture but also 
spiritual jazz, right? This concept of spiritual jazz. He put out one of the best records from 2020, I think it's 2020, uh, Promises with Floating Points, who's like a British electronic DJ. And that whole record was just phenomenal. And um, he's, you know, he was in Coltrane's band in the 60s, and he's been a constant sort of influence on people that love to do sort of like layered textured sounds. So he's kind of like the shoegaze pioneer of jazz. Um, his more recent stuff, everything's sort of like these sheets and layers of, uh, of sax sounds and things. And he's just, um, he's known just for kind of having really dense sounding solos and overplaying, overblowing the saxophone. Um, which is, which is, I, I'm hope I'm using the correct term, but he purposely made it louder than it was supposed to sound when he played, which is kind of interesting. The other one is Ramsey Lewis, who, if you know nothing about jazz, you at least know him from Hang On Sloopy and the song The In Crowd, uh, which were his two big pop hits. He also was a huge popular radio DJ, which I did not really know until a friend of mine told me at the record store, but he uh, hosted a jazz radio show in Chicago and it got syndicated and he did really well sort of bring a lot of contemporary jazz musicians to radio um, and getting them radio play. But uh, his two albums I like are stretching out was from 1960. Uh, Never on Sunday, which is 61. That period of 60 to 63, he made some really incredible um, jazz records. He's a jazz pian uh, pianist and sort of this idea of the jazz piano is more than an accompanying this uh, instrument. He brought it more to the forefront of of quintets and quartets and stuff and some of his solos are just like they're bonkers and uh so i wanted to bring all those guys up just because a lot of these really great jazz musicians who are not necessarily known like a coltrane or you know a Thelonious monk or something but still did really a lot of interesting records are are passing and they're not they, we're not getting musicians like this coming back right there's there's not the well's not getting replenished and mm -hmm. i think that's that's where it's really sad all right. Thanks, Rob. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, we will be talking about Woodstock 99. Hang in there for just about 30 seconds. Drew Leiter here. Wish you could keep up on DC Comics, but don't have the time or the money? Not a problem. Join Cletus Jacobs and I as we bring you recaps and commentary on DC Comics, television, movies, and more, whether they are good or not. The Earth Station DCU podcast comes out weekly and is part of the ESO Network. All right. Welcome back. We are talking about Woodstock 99. So way back in July, this was this happened July 22 through 26 in 1999 in Rome, New York. And there's a whole story about where this concert took place that feeds into a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. But our focus tonight is going to be on the recent two documentaries, Netflix's Trainwreck, which came out earlier this year, and the one on HBO Max, which came out a year ago. So I think we've all had a chance to at least watch the Netflix one, if not the if not both of them. So what are your first impressions? Like, you know, the lineup and the the event. I mean, first of all, is there any need for a Woodstock 99? No, there was no. a Woodstock '94 that was successful. That was six. Well, well, except for how much money it lost for the people yes. who were putting it on. Yes, but it was successful in every other way, basically. No, there wasn't probably need for it. But if you, if you know, as you're watching these 
documentaries, you you just see, you know, John Sher and Michael Lang and putting these all together, but you realize very soon, very shortly you realize that that it's because of course they want to make a shit ton of money. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I felt like it was. Ultimately, it all reveals itself. But, yeah. you know, well, yeah, and I think that, part of that is at least understandable because they lost a shit ton of well, money yeah. on, in 94. Yeah, I'm so not, I'm just to cover terrible. their own pockets, they right. have to make something. But the issue is the desire to make money came yeah. at the expense of the well-being of the attendees. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, you know, like mm. one thing to start this off is that. I just want to say that they, you know, everyone has, this was in, I think the actual, uh, the, the Woodstock 99 peace, love and rage, uh, documentary, the, the single one where they said that, you know, in 1969, everybody, you know, you ha everyone has this vi vision of how it was a wonderful, peaceful festival, but at, but really it, it was, but there at that one, people were starting fires, people died, the military came in. So like, I feel like that from, from there, they didn't learn their, from the mistakes that happened yeah. there, and it yeah. was just carried through again. Mm -hmm. I, I think what was particularly shocking to me was how they didn't look at that lineup and think, yeah, shit's going to go down. Big time. I know. And it's hard to... I mean, okay, let's let's look at the lineup really, really quickly. So mm -hmm. the ones that are sort of the more notorious ones on the lineup include Corn, DMX, Limp uh, Biscuit, uh, Rage Against the Machine, which I think Rage. we're in a whole different category though, but still, whatever. Yeah. Uh, chili Peppers, the Chili Peppers, but at the same time, and I. I I think this is super interesting. You had people like Cheryl Crow. Yes. And and Jewel. Jewel. It, you know, none you of only those... had three girls. So you only had Cheryl Crow, Jewel, and uh Alanis. And Alanis. One on each day. <laughs> right. And I thought it was so interesting that when uh John Cher was questioned about that, he's like, Well, I didn't really think in terms yeah. of male or female or blah blah blah. Sure. But he has one woman on each of the three days. That seems really Token. intentional <laughs> right exactly exactly and then there was a weird that weird t uh, the whole tent with the rave tent and member moby was saying like he got there and his name like there was they had the plaque with all the yeah. bands and his, their moby wasn't even on there and it was like this whole thing that he was like you know offended probably afraid from the start and of course <sighs> right that whole rave tent became a disaster after like you know the first night yeah yeah and, you know, at least at the original Woodstock, you know, part of it was weather, part of it, but there's a lot of things, but you had downtime. There was no downtime. I mean, you didn't have to go to the rave tent, you know, if you finished at the main stage or the East stage or, you know, there was also a third stage and emerging artists stage, which there's some interesting names on the emerging artists and some that are like big names now, but they were, you know. I guess just starting at that time, um, you didn't have to go to the rave tent, but look how many people did. Yeah. Whole, I mean, rave hangar, I should say. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about hangar. Let's talk about the fact that this is on a military base. First of Insane. all. Insane. Uh, yeah, I, not conducive to peace, love. Go ahead. I, I got the idea, like when they were talking about it, the infrastructure's there. There are buildings yeah. they can use as medical centers and what have you. Right. 
I, I feel like they looked at that so incredibly myopically. It's good infrastructure. Yeah, but there's no shelter. There's no, no shade. There's yeah. all of this asphalt Tarmat. everywhere that just yeah. amplifies the heat. It, right. it, that feels like a planning failure more than anything else. They saw it and thought, these are the benefits. And they didn't look at the risks that it also presented. Mm -hmm. And right. there were so many risks and that they, they seem to be blinded by, um, including lack of water, um, mm -hmm. taking people's water from them when they entered. That's the thing that's the most insane to me. It is. It's absolutely insane. You know, that that is nothing more than, you know, you can't bring outside food into the movie theater so that you can only buy our popcorn or whatever. And but this is three fucking days in a hundred degree heat. And yet we're going to charge you $4 for a bottle of water because we're yes. here to make money and fuck you. <laughs> exactly. So going back to the, the previous point first, before I jump into the hangar, um, the big problem I had is outside of the fact that they were looking to make money is that nobody that really had an accurate plan for music that knew anything about music was really seemed to be involved in this, right? It was more like just flip through Rolling Stone and figure out who's popular and put them on the bill, right? right. That's the first problem, right? Uh, the other problem is all the other things that you mentioned. There was, there, you know, you had James Brown and DMX, but it doesn't get very um, diverse between them and, mm -hmm. and, and, and women. That's the other thing. The and that's where I'm at on that. Now, moving to the rave tent and the water thing, taking away water at a festival is just um, barbaric. The, the minute you saw that, you're like, okay, this is a really bad idea, right? And um, the, the idea of a rave tent sort of just the word rave kind of frightens me now, anyway, having lived through that. Um, just you hear the word rave and like I know, people and stuff. And I, we, our, our generation, we get like non flashbacks. Even if yeah, we never, totally. even if we never went to a rave, even if like, I don't know about you, Steph. When I hear the word rave, you know, it's like it's like a PTSD flashback. We're like those. Oh God, those people, right? Um, so you almost had the yin and yang. You had the kids in college that were into like Limp Biscuit and Corn and all that really fucking annoying music of the time testosterone music yeah and then you had by 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 the contrast yeah the, the yang of that were the, the people that were the same type of people that listened to dance music right so you had those two different groups coming together which was a very bad idea you had um you know i think some of this too you look at the city of rome and 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 the administration there in that they did not have enough of a hand in the planning and the zoning and the reg regulation of this. Um, and right. They wanted, they wanted the fence to be around it so that this, the same thing didn't happen where people were sneaking in. Right. So, but that was also very, you're right. That was a very weird and a kind of militaristic. Um, I, I get that because it was in a, a space that wasn't a natural mm -hmm. amphitheater type of thing, right? And I get the fact that you make, tried to make it look nice. But at the same time, okay, you don't take a fence, put art up on it to make it look nice, and then take away people's water. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a really fucking ignorant thing to do, right? Sorry. I'm starting to cuss like Gina now. <laughs> but... That is that part of it was really ignorant. And then, you know, I, Steph, I don't know where you were at this point in time, but I remember being on the radio and this being a, a thing people were talking about in real time. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this concert. And, you know, none of it sounded appealing. A lot of us who were doing sort of that indie radio thing at the time, just just like, this is a stupid idea. Why do people want to go to this, right? Um, and it's almost like anybody that had some sort of an affinity for music or understood going to concerts as like a fun thing, just knew this was going to be a train wreck, right? Literally. So yeah. The name of the so thing. it's interesting yeah. that all of these people sort of knew this is well, going to be a train wreck, but then there were so many other people that just looked at it through the lens of money. money. And I think, you know, um, having worked at a label, you know, a little bit mm-hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s being on the radio, there was a fundamental, Steph, I, I'm hoping you can understand this too. If I'm, if I'm crazy, please slap me. There's a fundamental shift in like college and indie radio. Like when I started doing it in 87, up through like maybe 97 or 98, it was still underground and indie and kind of cool. And then it started to get really corporate. And that's when you started getting corn and stain and Limp biscuit. And from that point on, you started getting commercial alternative radio yeah. and, and things. And that's when it got really outside of the quality of the music going down. That's when you kind of got this like sort of hedonistic, quasi sexist machismo to it. Well, that, that is, is Moby has the great quote in, in the documentary yeah. where he says, the culture went from progressive to aggressive. So he meant Nirvana, which was yeah. progressive, to aggressive, like corn and offering, in a very short amount of years. Yeah. To me, that's the biggest thing about the, this film is that the outside of all the mistakes they made, they also did it at exactly the wrong time of the industry. And I'm hoping that makes some yeah, sort of sense. I, I, I'm not sounding like the cranky, bitter old guy that doesn't want to play cool music anymore. So, um, uh, Rob, and I'll help you with that a little. I was. Well, when Woodstock 99 happened, I was 11. But by the time Limp Biscuit and so on really made it big in the UK, I was probably about 13 years old and, you know, the right age to appreciate all that angry white boy music. And at the time, I, I liked it. But candidly, I've grown out of it because I'm a grown ass adult. And to your point, it is just it's so that angry, privileged kid who thinks their life is hard it's not yes and it has a level of aggression that's very artificial and very ramped up and very commercialized to specifically appeal to a certain audience and as a result merely by having them on your on the bill and to your point rob it feels like they went through rolling stone or whatever and just looked at who was big at the time but having them on the bill together attracted the wrong kind of audience, particularly for a, a festival that had its roots in peace and love and flower power. Especially since when they were asking these kids, you know, MTV's interviewing them and, and saying, you know, who played the first stars, who's played the Star Spangled Banner at the Woodstock 69? These kids didn't even know, like Jimi <laughs> Hendrix did, like that. Yeah. So what the, the funny thing was that he was standing in front of a wall that had Jimi Hendrix's yeah. name on it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good, good point. Um, you know, the one thing I, I kind of felt like at first I was just like, these kids are just hedonistic assholes and they were, but I kind of felt like, a, a um, especially during train wreck, which was the three parter, they did a good job of showing why they got progressively angrier. And it was because, mm-hmm. you know, 
they're there. I agree. They're, they're you look. You got one hundred and eighty dollars for a ticket. You're not you're not living on one hundred and eighty dollars a month that some people are that can yeah. barely even get by. So you, you by definition, you've already got some money to throw. You've already you know you're going to a festival. You know you got to get cash. You know you, you know you're going to pay for things. So mm -hmm. and you you know so you, by by definition, you're 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 already a little elevated uh, class wise you know, poverty, poverty level, but you get there, you know, there's barely an ATM machine. There's water. That's these fountains are getting disgusting by the hour. The porta potties start overflowing on day one. Um, they're charging $4 for water. They're charging for food. You can see why yes. these kids are getting pissed. They're getting more and more pissed and no one's doing anything about it. Like they're John share is blinded. Um, you know, Michael Lang, it, they look like they have blinders on there talking to the press as if one thing's happening and they, and super, un, you know, un, uncaring that another whole yeah. level of shit is happening. There was one person who was doing something about it. That older hippie lady who yes. was at the original Woodstock. She was awesome. Oh my God. I loved her. The so mother much. of the person and, who was working there. Yeah. And she, and she's just, you know, trundling around on her like yes. four wheeler and Picking she's like passing garbage. out trash bags and, and, you know, and, and getting upset when people are knocking over. Yeah. This is a piece of art. She was amazing. Yeah. She I love her. And she was like, she was the one who's like, this is what's going to be the downfall of this event. She is that We aren't taking care of people. So I'm going to fucking take care of people. Yes. She, and she's she, fantastic. God, she was amazing. But yeah. To, to Steph's point, on top of all of the failings at the festival organization level, you then have fucking morons like Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst yep. inciting people. I yes. mean, breaks when they play break stuff, his yeah. attitude, there is no way that that could be seen as anything other than inciting the audience. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that he comes off stage and one of the MTV guys, I can't remember his name, like shoves a microphone in his face and says, have you ever seen anything like that before? And he's like, man, that's crazy. I've never seen anything like that before. And he's like, what did you think when those people started tearing that shit off the, that big tower? And he's like, hey, man, it's not our fault. Yeah, he like, fucking knew. Of course. Yeah. He wasn't even asked. Of course. You know, but, did, did you play a part in that? He knew. Yeah. And uh, now, the thing Fred Fred Durst is like a professional provocateur. I mean, right. that's yeah. just, he's built his entire fucking career around that. The other thing too, is that these guys knew that what they were doing was inciting, but they also knew that the crazier it got, the more exposure they get and the more yeah. records they sold. Well, right? that's right, Rob. And that's where it gets really sick to me. I mean, just as pissed off as we get at the guys who didn't do their job with organizing it or even thinking about it, the yeah. fact that you know, these artists, and there were some that were very sincere that knew this was getting out of hand. The offspring. But I was just going to say the yeah. same thing. A yeah. lot of the, a lot of these artists sort of like, yeah, very easily could have said, Hey guys, calm down. Like my whole opinion of Gavin from Bush is kind mm. of changed with this whole Me thing. Too. Just the whole way he explained out of all those people that talked about it, yeah. the feeling and stuff. Right. I think that, his way of explaining what he felt like, what his motivations were, and that thing was really, I really thought that was really well done. And he honestly and, tried to mellow the crowd out. But the fact that he at least sort of said, whoa, wait a minute, yeah. I have a responsibility here. I mean, he seemed like the only one of like the, these like of the male bands um, that really yeah. sort of 
owned his own actions and said, this is what I was thinking and that. And I thought that was a really nice contrast for the overall tone of, of, of the docu of the, of the three-part documentary. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to get inside the head of some of these people. And I love the fact that he sort of explained, this is what bothered me. This is what I was thinking. And he seemed also to be generally concerned about, about his audience that he was playing for in a way that the others didn't. He's like, hey, I don't want anybody getting hurt at the concert. I don't want anybody to have a bad time. This is not what that's about. I'm agreeing with you and I know what you're saying, but I also was thinking about that, about how the artists responded. And, you know, with like, look, hey, there's a fire out there. Please calm them down. And they go out and play, you know, Peppers go out and play uh, Jimi Hendrix. You let me get next to your fire, right? They just like do the opposite. But yeah. you're, you're that art, you're the artist. And in a way, I, I'm not excusing it, but you are the artist and you are putting on your fucking show. And so I know yeah. it's kind of a dichotomy, right? Because what do you yeah. do, but you're going to give the audience what they want and, and you're going to do your thing. And I don't think, I think corn because they went on first, went ahead and did their regular show. Yeah, yeah. And even did. him kind of talking about it. I thought he was particularly articulate. Too. I did too. Um, and I think there's a difference of doing your show and like, and, yeah, and get, we get people revved up. Right. And but, being then, Fred Durst. But, but then there's Fred Durst. I, I think Fred Durst and the Chili Peppers are kind of the role where it starts to roll, right? Yeah. That momentum starts to go. Um, you know, I, I've talked to bands that have played festivals and stuff, and that a lot of them feel that their job is to play, is to keep the continuity going of keeping people entertained and at least, you know, um, happy, even if they don't aren't familiar with their music, they're at least there to, you know, there's a different mentality with it now. This, I think, you know, when you watch the corn set and the Limp Biscuit set, there's a fundamental difference of the mindset of the artist going out to perform. And that I think is a key thing that, that I thought was interesting too. And I'll, I'll agree when corn hit the stage, things shit hadn't really hit the fan in the same way as they had the next day. And I think by the time the Chili Peppers took the stage on the final day, I think by that stage, the organizers should have taken a look and said, maybe we don't do the candlelight vigil during the Chili Pepper set. Maybe handing out candles and lighters is a bad idea at this point after what we've seen. Maybe yeah. we ask the bands to tone it down a little and you know, maybe eliminate songs that might be seen as incitement. There's a, there a couple of yeah, a couple of points about that. Um, there was somebody in the I can't remember which of the two documentaries it was who said, you know, you're blaming the artist for the behavior of the audience. And, you know, I don't think you can do that. I think that, you know, a bear is going to act like a bear and Fred Durst is going to act like Fred Durst. <laughs> and you don't hire Fred Durst without knowing that that's what he's going to be doing. And I think that there is some truth to that. At the same time, Fred Durst is not a fucking bear. Fred Durst has the ability to make judgment calls to, you know, maybe change the way he's delivering what he's saying to the audience. You know, maybe he could have between songs said, you know, hey, let's all let's all calm down. Let's make sure everybody is safe. But even if he had done that, you would still follow that with another Limp Biscuit song. Yes. So I don't know that even if he had done that, it would have done any good. And I, I think, Alan, to your point there, this all feeds into they basically built this into a perfect storm. The lack of any kind of safeguarding 
on the part of the promoters in terms of providing good water, ensuring that restroom facilities were adequate, ensuring that food and drink and the necessities of life were easily available and affordable. Uh, everything about the asphalt and the way that that just amplified the heat, the heat as well, yeah. making it unbearable. And then on top of that, you have this overly aggressive lineup in parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I agree. Fred Durst is going to be Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit are going to be an angry band. I think if you hadn't had all of the organizational failures, they probably could have got away with that. Limp I agree. Played. I agree. Dozens, I mean, yeah, I'm not, not hundreds of other festivals yeah. and this right. hasn't yeah. happened. I'm not Agreed. excusing their, their behavior. I'm I'm just saying if you're in that artist mindset you're still you're going to do your thing yeah yeah and exactly think, and i think also too if you're an artist at the same time you don't want an organizer dictating what you do and don't do i, I understand that there's an artistic freedom element at work i but i still I think, think that, oh go ahead i still think though rob despite there being a need for artistic freedom i think by the final day exactly shit yeah. had hit the fan on really on the second or technically third day on the saturday i think there was a responsibility on the organizers on that final yeah. day to say there have been issues if we could perhaps play something a little you know more yeah and toned down that would be great i think you know if, if you know obviously would have could have should have but i would have shut this thing down after the second day yeah I um mean and you also have the ability because there is those magic words lineup changes subject to change i would have after limp biscuit sat down in a room and re looked at where they can put artists in a way like, okay, if you're going to put the chili peppers on, put them on early in the day and then put stuff on after, or try to at least think of something if you're going to do it. I know yeah, it may not work. And I don't think sure. you can do that though. Cause you have, you have sure. contracted with the peppers to be the headliner. You can't then say, I'm going to put you at two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And, but to that point though, the chili peppers are one of those bands who vary their set list pretty much from night to yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. They are one of those bands where you, cause you know, some bands rehearse yeah. 20 songs for the tour and they're going to play 20 songs yeah, a night and yes. their set list is rigid. Yep. The chili peppers, yeah. and, are, you know, the chili peppers yeah. mix that up. So if they wanted to say, Guys, we need you to play some karma stuff. Let's not have this crowd go too wild. They could have done that. Yeah, and the other thing too is the Chili Peppers were getting the same amount of money no matter what slot they got put in. All of, you know, the th the three the three or four headliners were basically told to pick their slots, but they could be moved. But it's still a prestige on... thing, right? We're I know a headliner it's still a prestige But I mean, we're not we're not going when on they uh, when they booked booked the show and made the concert lineup, right? much like they do this now. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that's happened because of this in, in festivals. But when they sat down and made the original lineup, they should have looked at like who these artists are, what they sound like, and how can we sort of build this in? And in the same way that they didn't look at how they treat the grounds, how they treat the people, they didn't do a good job of curation. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, we're talking about the the big bands that are you know sort of the headline as far as the you know the ones that the most of the trouble surrounded but you, you have to remember they also had jamiroquai right and, mm -hmm. and i'm just talking about on the main stage i'm not even talking about the two other stages just on the main stage they had g love and special sauce they had jamiroquai Jewel. they had buck cherry and you know 
like the Counting Crows and Dave, Dave Matthews. Matthews, for God's sake. So it's not like they stacked the the lineup strictly with these angry bands, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, when you look back at Woodstock '94, it was a completely different approach to, you know, stacking your lineup because yeah. there were there were some uh, current bands, but there were some classic rock bands. There were a number of artists from the original Woodstock. There was world music. There was so much variety. Yeah. There's another element that we're sort of, we didn't talk about yet, which is the security. <laughs> and oh that is the security were basically, you know, what, even that one guy that was a security guard that was interviewed, was like, yeah, we, we just asked us a few questions and they gave us a yellow shirt. You know, these right. guys were untrained. Right. They were um, part of them. Some of them just wanted to get into the show and they took exactly. their yellow shirt off and became part of the audience. They did, they weren't, you know, they just had no training and they had no, you know, there's a few guys there that obviously knew what they were doing and they were the ones that right away saw a problem. And right away, like the, like that EMT said, I think after the first night of the, the show, even when people were being pulled out of the pit, pulled, pulled, pulled out of the, he said it was the greatest disaster I ever went to. I mean, mm -hmm. he said that there was uh, like over a thousand transportations per night out of there, that show. So the security was a miserable fail. Absolutely. And at that point, at that point, you got to pivot. If you're an organizer, yes. and you're, if you're an organizer, and you're somebody in the civic government, and they right? wouldn't even admit or, it, or even okay. if you're somebody that's in the local me medical place that's getting all these people, yeah, somebody needs to at this point step in. Right. And I was going to say it's it's not the same thing because it was a few years before, but watching the footage of their daily press conferences reminded oh me God. of remember uh two thousand three when the US and the UK invaded Iraq. Yeah. And you would get the Iraqi Minister of Information going on TV <laughs> and saying things like, We are winning this war, we will defeat the Americans. And behind him, the American tanks were just trundling past in the distance. Yeah. That was this. <laughs> so was yeah. that. I mean, all the journalists nice. were all the journalists were like, "What are you talking about?" Everyone, 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 everyone bad yeah. is going on, and the whole fucking place is on fire. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody was kind of their own little Tariq Aziz in that thing. They were just a mess, and it was like, I I found their press conferences to be like as offensive as some of the behavior yeah. that I saw, and that's the thing that really. Everything got under my coat, but that really got me. Is that like, how can you just do this? And they've well, got reporters that are pressing them, right? Yes. And they're not even. They won't trying, give an inch. They won't give an inch. Like this is road, and that, and that, that, that I think was just like ghastly. And um, that, that brings up another issue of that pissed of me off the I, denial I, of what was going on with all the women there. And, well, and the, and the drugs. even yeah. before that. Yes. Um, it's interesting to look at both of the documentaries and the different footage that they used from those press conferences. And, you know, in in the one, you can tell that they're really trying to control the narrative. They are trying to make make sure the press gets a, you know, a good spin on this thing so that it's reported to the world in the in the HBO one. It's so interesting that in the in the new interviews, John Sher puts the blame on MTV. They are the ones that have spun this event into a negative thing. They are the ones that have set the tone for how all the press is going to report this event. But at the same time, in the press conference at, at, the, at the event, they showed this clip where this woman is like, 
you know, this has happened. This has happened. This has happened. I haven't seen any response to it. You know, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And he interrupts her and he says, are you, are you going to ask a question? Or are you just here to editorialize? Yeah. And she says, well, I, I have a question. He said, well, I'll answer your question. If you'll stop talking. I know. Come on. So rude, I know. First of Come all. on. And, Dude. And, the, and what she was at, you know, what she was referring to part of it was that women were getting yes. raped and sexually assaulted. And, you know, even the corn guy said, you know, there is not, you know, there is no reason why a woman shouldn't be able to go around without her shirt on, just like guys without getting groped, felt up, sexually assaulted and raped. I mean, there was apparently yeah. a rape right in front of the stage. Yeah. And, and, and there was a, there was a website set up after this by a woman who just said, if you've been assaulted at Woodstock 99 and she got hundreds and hundreds yeah. and hundreds. So and how that, can he de deny that? He, he well, literally he blamed the, he was that. blaming the women. He was blaming them in the oh. documentary. He blamed the women for, yeah. for going around. Well, you, you, yeah, you, what do you expect? What do you expect? He, he backed it down in train wreck a little bit, but he, but he oh, still was a God. total douche about it. Oh, that, 100%. yeah. And that is, you know, I think the part, the, that whole part was for me, the most grotesque part of this whole thing is just the callous disregard for but, human beings on any, any level. Right. One of the things that he said in the new interviews for these documentaries is that, you know, if you look at the population of a city and this event was basically a city, oh, if you look yeah. at the population, then the number of rapes that happened at our event isn't uh, statistically any more than what you would get in a city of an, uh, whatever, whatever, what he's talking about are the actual, like there was, I think there were only four rapes that were reported to the police and that's, there are actual police reports for, but there were so many more, you know, that there were like well, the guy who was talking about the van that gets driven by some stoner fucker into okay. the rave tent. And, you know, the guy who's trying to take control of the situation opens the side of the van and there's this woman who is unconscious and with underage. no clothes. And What's underage. That? She was like 14 oh, as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you know that none of that stuff got reported to the police. So you know that there was more. And, on and top it's of that... just, it, it's insane that he is under such denial that 20 something years after this event, he is still saying the same thing. And on top of that, you have, all the reports of women getting groped while crowd surfing yes. and stuff yes. like that, that is in comparison to, you know, people getting physically raped is, it's not as, I mean, it's, it's bad, but it's not as bad. Um, but I mean, how much of that was reported at the time? You know, no, none, yeah, none. I don't think. And none. plus, but, but you could see it, you're right there at the stage. That is what you see. You yeah. see these women getting their, you know, breasts touched and, you know, up the skirts and everything. Like, it's just. And it's, it's like, guys, how hard is it to just fucking restrain yourself? Yeah. <sighs> well, God, it's so I mean, if they, by, by day three, it was literally like one kid said it was Lord of the Flies. They started, they, mm -hmm. after, after the chili peppers, when they just started putting everything on fire and burning stuff. I mean, I was expecting, you know, a piggy head to go by on a stick. It was so bad. The fire department wouldn't even come in. I mean, how, I mean, ba how bad yeah. is that? And and it seemed to me at that point, the organizers just went abandoned ship. Yeah. And yeah. They're just going to leave them to it. And that was really shocking to shocking. me. Shocking. Because the, at that point, all 
all concepts of safeguarding, all concepts of the responsibility they had to the people who had paid to be there and, and to make sure that they're safe yeah. had clearly gone out the window. So any of the arguments around, well, it was MTV that, that did this. Mm-mm. No, no. no. And, the, and the poor underpaid staff persons <sighs> who were hired to work the weekend who are barricading themselves With in no the offices sleep. because they're fucking terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. And the other thing too, I thought was interesting is when they talked to concert people that went, that were like, okay, we're getting out of here. Right. Yeah. I, I, I sort of really liked the, there was one guy who's in the uh, trainer throughout the time. He said, I didn't even know this was going on. Stuff. And then you get the other guy that's running, trying to document everything. I thought those stories were particularly compelling by contrast to everything else we're seeing. Mm-hmm. But I really liked the stories where the people like, I could feel this turning as somebody going to the concert. Because that illustrates the point that you've got somebody running the concert, you've got performers, and you've got people in the audience. Yeah. And then fire department, police department, whatever, all saying this is turning south. At some point, you know, yeah. This the the accountability goes up to the top. Well, right? there was a very yeah. telling moment when when um Michael Lang's assistant was following him with the video camera oh, at yes. the very end when everything was destroyed. And Michael Lang, you know, the guy who basically just showed complete indifference and also just, you know, he was a calm kind of mellow guy, just very indifferent in a way. He, he turns around and he just says, you know, get out of my face to her or something yeah, like that. And that was, that was Pilar, the girl Pilar, whose yes. mother was yes. the hippie who wanted to yeah. pass out trash bags. Yes. And he, he just said, Le- get away Pilar. Get, get away. And he, that was the one you could see right there. He knew exactly what the fuck was going on. And he, yeah. you know, but he would I, never admit it. <laughs> of, of the organizers, I see Sher mm. as far more of a villain than yes. Lang. I mean, Lang yeah. Yeah. comes across to me, he came across to me as very naive. Yes. He assumed everyone would act like they did in Woodstock 69 and right. just seemed so far out of his depth when shit went south. Whereas Sher seemed far more Greedy. like he didn't give a fuck. Money. Right. Yeah. And when you talk about Michael Lang, I think I think there's something that's really important to to consider when you're talking about 69 versus 94 or 99. 60 69 Woodstock was sort of an expression of a movement that was happening in society. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a manufactured thing. It was it was the counterculture. It was the the shift in um the way that 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 young people saw society, it was a response to the Vietnam War. It was so many things that were galvanizing these kids into their own movement. Yeah. And in 99, you don't have that. You, you're trying to say peace, love and whatever, you know, but you don't have the thing that is unifying your audience. And they tried to manufacture that by saying columbine happened five weeks ago let's make let's make right let's make gun violence our theme our you know the 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 thing that we're fighting against but you you're you're basically telling your audience what it is that they are going to be supporting or or rallying against by coming to this concert you're not you're not building on what they are already feeling and experiencing and and passionate about and that that also came off as very insincere to me as well. Yeah, let's um, pass out fifteen thousand fucking candles, 
you know, to a bunch of angry fucks. Just even before they got to the candles and they were talking about, you know, oh, it's going to, it just sort of seemed like they were reaching at straws the entire time. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think the thing that was sure, going back to what Anthony said, that, that is interesting is in the beginning of the film when they're dealing with James Brown. Yeah. Uh, at the James very, Brown. You know, the, the like, I'm not getting paid till I got on stage. He has the ability to get James Brown Let's talk James Brown off the wall and go out. Don't worry. You're going to get paid. Go off. He's willing to like let to, hey, man, you're going to get paid. We're going to take care of you. Right. He's willing to go that mile for James Brown. But when the shit gets crazy with Limp Biscuit, it's a totally different story. Right. Um, and I just thought that at that point, you just kind of knew, okay, I see the, I see the leopard with his spots. Right. Mm. Um, and all that, all the sympathy for him sort of died, but like, what is that? Eight minutes in the movie? Yeah. 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 In episode one, um, with the whole, I'm, you know, he's on the phone with James Brown. You can get on the phone with James Brown lawyer, but you can't get on the phone with a civic person to send in, yeah, real security or real police. I or... think the train wreck, the three parter, did a better job at at um, showing. Uh, how the corporate greed all played into that than the than the documentary did. Although the documentary did uh, show show that um, because mm. you know they kept an, in train wreck. They kept flashing to so many like bumper stickers of greed and the, yeah. the kids talking about it. Like you really got more of a sense of these kids were pissed off at at MTV. They were pissed off at corporate greed yeah. and because they're getting charged $4. It wasn't even $4 for water at the end. It was like that girl was saying it was like $20 because there was no water. No one had water. So they had outsourced all that food, the vendors, everything was outsourced. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't have control over it because they, so they just, it, it just was, it was a train wreck. I mean, you hate to keep coming back to that yeah, term, but it's, it's such a perfect, it's a perfect and, it's, uh, it, and the whole title. situation really, did come down to the true like nightmare of supply and demand economics the yeah. supply is so low we can charge whatever the fuck we want for it and make a shit ton of money and fuck these poor kids who are here and then there's right. going to be a riot and, and exactly and there's a couple of things about that so um in the hbo one i thought it was so interesting that they interviewed a guy who was i don't consider myself somebody who would ever get involved in a riot but there I was. He got swept up in it. He is not a violent person, he says. He is not someone who would take those kind of actions, but he's in it and that wave comes over him and he goes along with it. And he's, you know, tearing up an ATM and they open up the supply trucks and, you know, he's like, there was all this food yeah. and all this water that wasn't put out during the weekend. He said, I had more water during the riot than I had the whole three days. And that right there tells you what was wrong about the event and how it got that bad. But I, I just thought it was so interesting. The whole like that whole mob mentality depiction, it just plays out right in front of you. And I think that it was it was really well depicted in HBO. But in the Netflix one, you had the one guy, uh, his last name is Blaustein. I can't remember his first name, um, who was like, he uh, was like, they were leaving. And he's like, there was this massive explosion. And he's like, we oh, yeah. have got to get this. And he runs back in with his camera, with his microphone, and he's covering this stuff. And it's just insane. These people are tearing down 
speaker towers, like massive. And propane speaker tanks are blowing and, up. That was the explosion, the propane yes, tanks. Insane. And, and that's when they call the a, cops. How does a fucking concert get to that point? <laughs> It, I mean, it really is a it really is a societal uh, it's a commentary on society really it really yeah. is a if you, it's, yeah. yes. it's just Lord of the Flies it, just read the book and that's how yeah. that is how and what's so shocking yeah. to me about it is relatively how few people died I, I think Agreed. it was like three or four in total over the course of this festival that went completely sideways yeah. you would expect the death toll to have been higher not that yeah. i would want it to be but you know just yeah. based on everything that went down and then yeah. on top of that you know it, i suspect if it had been higher you probably would have seen the organizers sued for manslaughter yeah i yeah. suspect one there was a lot of out of court settlements you know the other thing too that really irritated me about the whole well where, where do we start just the sort of idea Alan's touched upon this really well, the idea of MTV, MTV, MTV. I really liked the the woman they had on who worked at MTV and then the backstage footage of when the P MTV yes. people were talking. It's like, this thing was so bad that sensationalist MTV pulled the plug and got the fuck out of Dodge, yeah. right? Um, and in many ways, this was kind of the pivot moment for MTV as well, sort of like the MTV that we all kind of remember at this point. This is pretty much the exclamation point that that's gone, which is sad. But I think too, you know, if any of these bands had gone out and done a virtuosic, amazing set, none of us know about it now. And that's really sad is that, you know, the music of this is all completely forgotten. You know, we talk about all the four or five bad apples, right? But I have heard from somebody at labels that, you know, the Alanis Morissette set was one of her best sets. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've heard that, you yeah. know, um, the people that got to see James Brown were like, this is one of the last times James Brown was really James Brown. Mm. Um, I've also talked to a couple people that do concerts, that work at concerts, and that like even by 1999, that, that notion of putting propane tanks there was way out of use commonly across the industry. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even sure, you know, in the same way that they outsourced their um, – vending and and security and everything i'm not even sure they even looked at anything uh, I, I i just get yeah. the this is where it's really vile is i just think they sat in a room and just sort of counted their money you know this sort of nero while while rome is burning thing right yeah yeah and i just that is the part that's really offensive um not that any of the other stuff is either you know but i think too the really nuanced part and i'm kind of curious where step what steph thinks on this is when they talk about like you kind of see the german the the very beginning of the sort of me too connection to some of this yes. um i thought that whole part of the, the of, of the documentary was really interesting yeah. about this concept of like we're going to talk taking control of what what happens to us yes and i thought that part was really fascinating and i wish the documentary would have explored it more but i get that they only had a certain amount of time yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think they showed it really, I especially thought the three-parter show, showed it really well. Uh, both of them did actually, but, and, and especially with that woman, you know, starting that website afterwards, that was like, just like incredible that, you know, she got so, it was sickening that she got so many responses of, yes, mm -hmm. I was assaulted at Woodstock 99, you know? Um, but I think that like Megadeth had that perfect, I guess it's a song, but it was like, 
peace sells, but who's buying? Like that yeah. was just the, that encapsulated that whole yeah. thing. Great so, uh, whether it be, you know, the greed, the, you know, the, the people destroying the place, the people assaulting people, it just, everything was just. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the height of the PMRC and yeah. corporate rock is killing music. So you have these movements outside of the Me Too that are happening because of this that are sort of stagnating the development of musical culture in the late 90s and early 2000s. A minute ago, you used the phrase bad apples to talk about some of the bands that were inciting stuff. And I think it's interesting to, to, to bring that up because I think that John Sher actually used that phrase when he was talking about there's no widespread violence. There's no blah, blah, blah. It's just a few. And I swear to God, I'm sure he said he there's just a few bad apples. How blinded must you be when you're seeing footage of speaker towers being destroyed and semi trucks being blown up and cars upended and destroyed and, you know, vendor tents being ripped to shreds? How how can you say it's just a few bad apples that are giving a bad name to our good event. It's that not, is insane. It's not blinded. He's lying. That's yeah. what it is. You know, there's yeah. no there's no two ways about it. He's just yeah. blatantly lying. So one thing I wanted to talk about, and it's not really covered by the documentary, but effectively how this killed off <laughs> the whole Woodstock festival, right? Oh, so there, yeah. there have been two other attempts. There was the mm -hmm. 2009 Heroes of Woodstock tour. Right. Which, rather than being, you know, a festival like this, they took some of the bands from the original Woodstock, Jefferson Starship, 10 years after, maybe six or seven bands, and played a bunch of arenas, mm -hmm. which I, I get it. You're kind of emphasizing those original bands, but it doesn't quite have the same feel to it no, right it's and a nostalgia feels a bit more corporate right um, exactly and then there was the attempt at doing woodstock 50 which it, yes it just seems like when i read about that they had a venue then they didn't get the permit and then they tried to to flip the venue and right a band said well we thought we would be playing in new york not in maryland so we're not performing anymore then they said okay we're going to do it as a one day and, and it just it was a shit show from the get-go and that eventually was they canceled it that was a complete mess with yeah. them announcing dates when they didn't even have a venue. Like there's no venue booked. How can you say what date your event is going to happen? <laughs> and it just went crazy from booking bands when you don't have a place for them to play. And it was just ridiculous. But on the flip side, it seemed like the lineup that they had yeah. was a lot more diverse it yeah. would certainly a lot calmer. I mean, the headliners <laughs> would have been the Killers, Dead and Company, and Jay Z. I mean, that's hardly wow. you yeah. know Metallica, Chili Peppers, and Corn and Corn, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I there was it... certainly no diversity again, also, or not much at um at the the ninety nine fest. Yeah, yeah, that was a yeah. whole other thing that I guess DMX was commenting on, like. They, they were asking him in front of, you know, you're in front of like a basically almost all white audience and you're asking him to repeat back to you, you know, my N word, you know, like yeah. back and forth, back and forth. So like how that's just so 
bizarre. I don't it know. It is bizarre. He, he must have felt like it must have just been so weird to see them all shouting that mm. back at him. He was weird or, you know, look at me. I've got the I've got the ability to make yeah. people say this stuff. Yeah. Holy but it's but, but to your point, it's like um, it was George Clinton, James Brown, mm -hmm. DMX. Three chicks. Um, <laughs> yeah, three women. Chicks. And I think um, three Ice white Cube chicks and, and Wyclef. Right. And Wyclef, John, right. yeah. Wyclef yeah. didn't exactly behave well either. No. Um, right. Hey, everyone, throw water bottles at the stage. Oh, yep. right. Uh, what the hell? Um, I feel like I've been cursing a lot this show. I apologize. But um, ah, fuck oh. it. it's okay. I, I'm uh, again, I'm channeling Gina. She taught me it's okay to repeatedly drop f-bombs on this show <laughs> but you know it, yeah it was a an extremely poor lineup in terms of diversity um and i really think that the lineup they had for woodstock 50 that was proposed looked really good that did uh, look really incredible and really interesting and, and i think that was curated by someone that thought about put time and energy into into the artists and where they were going to put them and it looked like it could have really been interesting and I, I wonder if having the Woodstock name was what killed that. Yeah. Because of the no notoriety of Woodstock 99. Was it still John Cher and Michael trying to to do that, those shows? I don't think so. Uh -huh. um, Just curious. I never, because I never heard about those. You know, honestly, this 99 thing, like, I don't know where, where was I? I mean, I knew where I was. I was working at a record company and stuff, but I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I really... I, I mean, I probably knew about it, but at the time, I didn't know what a giant shit, mm -hmm. literal I, yeah, shit show I mean, it was. This is one of the things I was going to ask you sort of offline, is I was doing some stuff for Elektra at the time, and then I was still doing, you know, the KDHX show. Yeah. And I really didn't get an idea that this went bad till I started to talk to two or three reps that are like, yeah, you know, hey, I went to this or whatever, right? No, and, I had no idea. Um, and then I kind of remembered, oh yeah, I remember hearing about this, but it was, I was so uninterested in any of those bands at the time. I just kind of wasn't paying attention to I it. think that's why, cause I'm like, you know, I, I, that wasn't my style of stuff. I mean, yeah. I like some bands in there, you know, I definitely like the Chili Peppers. I definitely like, you know, Alanis and Cheryl Crow and yeah. White yeah. and stuff, but Cheryl I, Crow was amazing on that set though. Yeah. Uh, I see. Um, I, you know, I was in university at the time that a lot of these bands were happening, like when they were becoming the thing. And so I was like hunkered down in my classical music studies and I was like analyzing symphonies and I was, you know, writing my, you know, term papers on Shostakovich and I did one about Schoenberg, but I just wasn't aware of the stuff that was happening. I wasn't aware. I was barely aware of anything other than what I was studying. And I would yeah. come up for air if a band that I super liked, yes, put out a new live album. And so I got that. That was about as much as I was aware. I didn't, I just didn't clue into the Limp Biscuits and the yeah. Corns and all that stuff. I, it just wasn't on my radar at that time. But I was aware of the press reports about how bad. 99 was and the, were, huh? and the fires and the you know all that stuff I, I knew about that but i didn't really have a context for it because i didn't really have a a lock on any of those bands well also and, if we don't see these movies or documentaries you, unless you were there yeah and unless you were really you know not just like drugged out of your mind so you didn't know what was going on anyway but like you you wouldn't know 
Yeah. yeah. And for me, living in the UK, I mean, and being 11 years old, I had no clue. But I, I did hear about it a few years later when I started getting really into Metallica. And I was like, oh, they played Woodstock 90. There was a Woodstock 99. Cool. Let me read up on that. And I started looking online. I was like, oh, this sounds like it was awful. <laughs> yeah, it sounded awful at the very beginning. Like when I first remember hearing the lineup, I'm just... You know, I'm just kind of going, yuck. And I think, you know, I think the biggest thing is that this completely changed how festivals are run now in every single way, which is a good thing. So, you know, the, the positive out of this is that, you know, all these big festivals happening now have all this shit on lockdown, right? It's interesting uh, that in the HBO Max documentary, they specified that Coachella was happening that same year. And they they said that everything that seemed to happen at Coachella was seemed like a response to yeah. Woodstock because when people walked in the door, they were handed bottles of water. Right. Yeah. Just everything like that. The the lineup was different. It was more diverse, you know. So it, it is interesting that it had that immediate an impact on the festival industry, basically. So here's the thing. My, the first festival I ever went to was a metal festival. It was downloaded in 2003, Ooh, right? Nice. Iron Maiden played, Marilyn Manson, Deftones, Murder Dolls, right? Audio nice. Slave, Disturbed, a bunch of aggressive bands, fundamentally. But there was no hint of any audience violence, I mean, it's a that there probably were some incidents of inappropriate sexual con, um, conduct because it was the early two thousands, and let's be honest, that kind of thing was pretty endemic, probably still is. Um, but nothing I saw at the age of like fifteen or however old I was at the time. Um, and you know, I feel like a yes, festivals have done a lot to change the way these things are run to prevent this. But equally, it can't 100% be blamed on the music, right? Metal festivals, no, no. rock festivals have been going on for a long time. Hip-hop festivals, even. Yeah. 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 So, again, I, I feel like it was just the perfect storm of yep. a poorly, poorly run festival where the organizers prioritized money over human health, human well-being, etc., and then that was exacerbated by the behavior of several of the artists, not all of them, but several of them. And yeah. the behavior of the poor behavior of a shit ton of the audience, because yeah. you can't excuse that either. I mean, yeah, you, know, you could have yeah. left. I always was thinking about that during the thing and they did show some people leaving, but you know, you could have left mm -hmm. <laughs> if you were that unhappy, go home. Yeah. I suspect there was an element amongst some of them of, well, I've paid a lot of money to be yeah. here. Sure, yeah. of course. Yeah. And, of course. you know, yeah. I, honestly, if I yeah. dropped $180, and once you allow for inflation, let's say it's double that now. Oh, yeah, at least. Um, if I dropped $360 on going to a festival, yeah. I, no. I would want that full festival experience. To your so, point, I mean, it was just a conflagration. Is that a word? Conflagration? Am I, it, is that a word? It is. <laughs> a conflagration <laughs> of events that just, it was right. unique to this festival. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I've been looking forward to this discussion mm. for weeks. So yeah. I'm glad we finally got to it. This was, I, I loved both of these documentaries. They are gripping watching. And I'm so glad we finally got to discuss them. Next time we are going to be back 
we're going to be talking about the albums of 1972 and we have a very special guest that's going to be joining us <laughs> who is it steph it's my husband bob perry yeah guitarist Woo. and singer extraordinaire and right. you might know him the from the band winter hours right he was in winter hours really we're yeah finally, oh. we're finally going to get to meet him i'm yeah, so excited i have you are I'll have to send you my record to have him sign it and send back to you. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. So, uh, Stephanie, where can people find more about you and about your current single? You can find me on Bandcamp. You can find me at my website, which is therearebirds.com. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music and on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds and all the streaming platforms. Anthony. Well, you can't find me at any of Stephanie's stuff, but you should check it out because she's awesome. Um, you can also find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way from, through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We are currently in season 12, so we've just started the Tom Baker era, and you can find us at watchers4d.podbean.com or wherever else you like to get your podcasts, probably including wherever you're listening to this one. And you can also find us on social media at @watchers4d. All right, Rob. So I am found on the radio at kdhx.org on Wednesdays, uh, hosting Juxtaposition. It's archived on the stream, so if you have much more better things to do on a Wednesday night from seven to nine central, you can uh, listen later if you want, and um, you can listen to that show and all of uh, the other shows we do. And I also am on uh, needcoffee.com and their Weekend Justice podcast as well. And I'm on Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram, as the kids say. And Modern Musicology is now on Instagram, too. So go find our Ooh. account and give us a follow. And you'll see some new content coming out there. Looking forward to a whole new stream of content creation. Yeah. Um, you can also find my publishing company, Cosmic Press, at cosmicpress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com. I've got a couple of new things in the works that will be out at some point. Who the hell knows when? I don't. I should, but I don't. And then I've got another Star Trek podcast called Earth Station Trek, and it is available on Spotify and Apple and all those places that Anthony mentioned and anywhere that you're listening to this podcast, as he says. All right. So we will be back next week. Thank you all for listening. Take care. Have a great week. Don't burn stuff down. And I'm going to we'll do it. <laughs> don't do it, man. Rebel. Don't do it. That reminds me of that one guy in the in the three-parter who's like, match, kerosene, boom. Right. I was like, that's awesome. All right, so we're going to boom on out of here. So we'll see you in a week. Take care, everybody. See you. Thanks, y'all. Bye-bye. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.